Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. There are a lot of libraries installed in any Linux distribution. Libraries are super important to make programmers' jobs easier because if there's a library to do something, you don't have to write the code to do the thing. You just have to invoke the library. The library itself usually has several header files and compiled uh, library files that you can just reference. You can invoke, you, you can use a, a function from that library or create a class based on that library and then do the thing that you want to do within your application. It sounds simple and, I mean, to a degree it is a lot simpler than not, than, than having to invent the code from, from the ground up. Uh, it is complex. I mean, you have to know what a function is. You have to know how to call that function. You know, have to, you have to know how to include the library. And then when you're compiling it, you need to know, you need to make sure that your compiler knows that the library is on your system and how to get there and how to look for it and so on. So it's, it, it isn't, it isn't invisible by any means. It is, it is something that you have to actively use and be aware of and kind of understand. But there are a lot of them, and we are only in the B section. We're at libburn is the next one in the list. We just did libblu-ray in the previous episode, so it's libburn this time. And we've been doing this for several uh, episodes. I mean, just the, the L package, the library package. So I'm going to try to get through a bunch of them today, because there's just not that much to say about a lot of them. So libburn, for instance... Very useful library, undoubtedly. Someone out there loves it. What does it do? It helps you burn media. Uh, CDs, DVDs, Blu-rays. It That's what it is designed to do. It writes bits in a consistent way to a very specific media that has expectations on how those bits are delivered. That's libburn. That's all I'll say about it. Uh, lib... Next is libkaka. Libkaka is an ASCII text rendering library. So, for instance, let's say you want to display an image, but for whatever reason you don't have um, a graphics card for that, or you don't have uh, you don't have a, uh, a, a graphic server. So, uh, you can still potentially do that with libkaka the color ASCII art library because it will convert pixels to, to, it will use text instead of pixels to display an image. You can test this out, it's kind of a fun thing to do. Um, let's see, I, I tried just Kaka Clock, C-A-C-A-C-L-O-C-K, but it keeps telling me it can't open the font. So Kaka Clock dash dash help tells me that I can use dash dash font and then point it to a font, but I cannot figure out what format of font it wants. I've tried PC, what is it, PCB, PCM, something like that. I've tried you know, normal TTF. I, I, I don't know what it wants for, for its uh, font, so 
Couldn't get that to work. So then I tried Kaka View. This is supposed to display images. Try that on like a PMG or a JPEG and it'll tell you can't do that. It needs a BMP, which is like a bitmap. Okay, well, we've covered uh, image magic in previous episodes. So we can do convert path to the JPEG or PNG or whatever you need to convert space foo.bmp. That ought to work. Kaka view foo.bmp. Error loading foo.bmp. Only bmp is supported. So not really sure what's going on there either. There's, there's one last thing that we can try, which is Kaka play, which is a f video player. Seems even less likely to get this one work to work, right? Well, I'll go to my uh, folder with a bunch of um, video files in it. I'll select this web M video. Can't imagine that's going to work. And what do you know? It 100% works. It, it, it can play a web M somehow perfectly. Now those are just demo applications. I don't, I, I don't believe that libkaka is necessarily distributed on the strength of those applications, but they are fun to, to look at. And, you know, in some some mythical time where I'm sitting in front of a computer that doesn't have a graphics card that is capable of displaying graphics or, um, you know, something that's just headless and I absolutely need to see an image rendered as ASCII text, I guess all of these th these capabilities would be would be the way to do it. Um, I can't, I, I honestly, I'm, I'm not convinced about, about that. I, I, I I, I think it seems cool, but I'm I would like to see an image that I could look at as rendered as ASCII text and and get a, a useful sort of idea of what that image is. You know, I'm just I'm not convinced. So uh, I'm just I don't know. Play around with it yourself. I'm not convinced. I believe I suspect it might be a novelty. Lib Canberra. Canberra. Um, Lib Canberra is a XDG sound theme and name specification implementation. So it's an implementation of the XDG, that's the free desktop kind of structure around standards for desktops on, on free and open source software systems. So this specifically implements the sound system so that you can get audio notifications when you do certain things. Like if, if I were to... Oh, I guess I can't hear that. I feel like on one of my computers, I thought it was this one, um, that when I do the sound, you hear sort of a pop, you know, like a little pop sound. Uh, I know that some systems, for instance, when you plug in a USB thumb drive, you'll hear like a, a, a chime or a click or a, some kind of alert. So there are various alert sounds that you may hear on a desktop. And Lib Canberra is a subsystem or, or a, yeah, an implementation of this specification that is designed to be portable and easy to use across lots of different kinds of systems so that you can be sure that your desktop sound system, your, your sound alert notification, your event sounds are, are picked up and played as, as you wish them to be. Uh, personally, I, the, the, the time that I run into this the most, it seems, is Linux Mint. I feel like Linux Mint really loves to implement the sound theme for their desktops. And I don't, I, I find that, um, well, honestly, I find some of their sounds a little bit abrasive. Uh, like, I think, what is it? They're, Something so one of them has this horrible chirp sound to it, and it just feels like fingernails on a chalkboard practically to me. It just it, and I don't even actually mind the sound of fingernails on a chalkboard, so it must be worse than that. Um, 
so it's weird to me the the, the whole idea of desktop sounds not not weird like get it away from me weird just just interesting i would i would like to hear more about sort of the history of sound effects sound event sounds on desktops because in a weird way i don't maybe it's just me i don't really remember them previous to linux like i don't i i i could be wrong because i misremember things frequently and things get sublimated but i don't remember there being event sounds on on certainly my previous operating system, and I don't remember it being a thing ever. Like, I just don't remember that being a thing. I mean, I, I know that it there... I, I, I don't think that it was like that it didn't exist until I started using Linux. I just didn't really feel like it was a an expectation. And then when I got to Linux, it felt like there was this... There must... I, I don't feel like everyone using Linux wants event sounds on their desktop. I just feel like when I started using Linux, it became clear to me that a Apparently, there's a group of people out there who care about sound effects on their desktop. Because otherwise, why would these systems even exist? Why would it be default on Linux Mint, for instance? So that's just kind of interesting. I have noticed a little bit ever, you know, since using Linux, I have noticed that, like, you know, you'll you'll hear Windows event sounds. Like, if you hear someone... Um, I don't know what they're doing, really, but you'll hear it, like, if you're on a, a video call with them or something, you'll hear something happen on their desktop that'll chime or something, and you'll think, oh, I think that's a Windows sound. Uh, so, I mean, is, I don't know, is it a Windows thing, or is it a Windows and a Mac thing, and I've just completely forgotten, or or is it just really, really Im- imbalanced, uh, you know, across across the spectrum? Some people like it, some people don't, I don't know. So anyway, that's what LibCanbra does. It just it provides it provides sound effects for specific actions, and you can usually find those actions in system settings. If you go to your sound, um, uh, little your audio tab, whatever it's labeled as, there's usually some kind of section for like the the volume of sound effects. Uh, and then if you go to, for instance, uh, where is it? Desktop, no, workspace behavior, maybe? The workspace behavior? Uh, there's some, some place, desktop effects? No, that wouldn't be it. I don't know where it is in KDE. I guess that, that, that's, that's further proof or evidence that I really, I don't think I, I don't think I run into it that much, like, in real life. Notifications? Maybe it's notifications. No. I don't know where it is in KDE. That's how little I think about it. But on Linux Mint, I can actually, I can picture it. You, you go to your the system settings, and you go into, I don't know, you know, I think it's just sound, um, and, you, and you can actually set the, the different sounds for each different, um, for each different alert. And it, it's, you know, there's like, I don't know, 10 of them or 12 of them. Um, I, I don't remember their, the, them including a whole lot of alternate choices, weirdly enough, but, but you can, you can set it. Ah, here it is. In, in, in KDE, whew, that's really, that's a lot of places to go. So you go to notifications, and then at the bottom of notifications, there's applications, configure. Click on configure, and there's a list of all the applications you've got installed on your system, or at least all the ones that you've got installed that aren't flat packs, I suspect. Yeah, looks like it. Um, and then, no, this is a flat pack, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, and then you can click on that, and you can click on configure events, and then you've got a whole, you got all the, the events that that thing knows about, and then you can set the sound that gets played at that event. So there you go. That's your window into Lib Canberra from a KDE system. As I say, 
I'm just not a user of that. Let's talk about libcap and libcapng, or really libcape in a way. Uh, libcap, libcape, libcapability is what it's is what that stands for. And there are two of them. There's libcap, libcapng, ng in the open source uh, world generally. From what I've heard, it, it means next generation or new generation, and it is uh, a way to denote that hey, here's this thing that existed, and I have re-implemented as a, a complete drop-in replacement. Libcap, libcapng, those are essentially the same. They they serve the same purpose. They're two different implementations of that thing. Libcap 2.63 is the original, and it's its job was to discover in your application you could use this to discover what the current user of your application is actually capable of doing that's an important thing because if if the user isn't doesn't have the right permissions to do a thing then they can't do that thing uh, whereas libcap ng uh, does the same thing but uh, it 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 does it in fewer lines of code, essentially. I mean, that is its main. That's its main um, purpose, really, is to is to make it simpler for the programmer to make these kinds of checks, so that they can be more specific about what the user actually needs to do in order for something to work. So, with the old libcap, it's the libcap ng's author claims or asserts that with the old libcap. It was so complex, like 60 lines of code or something like that, to just check whether the user could do a certain task. That what people normally did, or often did, they would just check if you're root. If you're not root, they'd say, nope, can't do it, you have to, you have to run this program as root. And that fixes the problem, just like everything is fixed when you just give yourself blanket permissions for everything. Now, the libcapng author asserts that this result in systems that aren't as secure as they could be because everyone's just saying, ah, oh, just run this thing as root. That way I don't have to write the 60 lines of code every time I want to check whether you can actually do the thing that I want to let you do. You can imagine this with um, system demons and, I don't know, uh, something like K3B, although I, I, I shouldn't call that out specifically because I don't know how that works. I don't know what it's using. I mean, I guess we could try to really quick see whether it's using um, K3B LDD grep. So I'm just doing a LDD user bin K3B pipe grep libcap. Uh, it is using libcap. Okay, so we could argue, possibly spuriously, we could argue that K3B, well, you know, I mean, we don't know. So, I mean, we could find out. We could look at the code. That would be the correct thing to do, but I'm not going to do that. Um, not right now, anyway. Uh, so, let's say for a moment that K3B or an application like it is using libcap, and you want to write data to a to a peripheral, to a device. Now, that is normally not something that you can just do because we don't know whether you own that device as the user. It could be someone else's device in the system and you shouldn't be writing data to it. So K3B probably, because I trust K3B, they've probably written quite a lot of, of code to try to figure out what kind of permissions you have set right now to see whether you can actually do that. Are you the, are you the, a, a member of the correct group and so on? As long as you are, then it'll proceed. Um, now, if K3B had been lazier, then they could have just said, you know what, 
I can't ascertain whether you own that device. Why don't you log, quit K3B and start it back up as root, and then we'll just be able to do whatever we want. But that's literally whatever you want, right? I mean, that's across the board. You are root now. You can do whatever you want. It's much, much cleaner, obviously, to have libcap, to, to have written all the code for libcap, or to do it in like literally two or three lines with libcap ng, to see, hey, I want to know specifically whether this user can write to this device. That's all I need to know. I don't care if the user is root, as long as that user is capable of doing this thing. That's what libcap and libcap ng uh, has been designed for. The, the argument for libcap ng is that with libcap ng, ideally programmers will, will go to the trouble of being uh, specific about what they need to know, rather than just saying with libcap, they're, they're, they're disincentivized from writing that 60 lines of code. Not the greatest programmer in the world, but I know that when when you're writing a, a program and you have the choice <laughs> of spending your afternoon uh, checking for correct permissions or something, and you realize after looking at the library and trying, you know, looking reading the documentation, that's already taken like an hour. So you're reading the documentation and you realize, oh my gosh, just to check to see if they can, if my user can write to this DVD device, I have to do what? You know, and you just see 60 lines of code or whatever it is. I keep saying 60 because that's what libcapng says it would take. Um, but you see that, and I mean, that is literally, to some programmers at least, that's an afternoon. To get that right, that's a full afternoon. For some programmers, it might not be. It'll be a copy and a paste and adjust a couple of little things. They know what they're doing. Super simple. Maybe it takes 15 minutes instead of 5. Maybe it takes 30 instead of 15. Whatever. Not a big deal. To other people, it's it's almost a deal breaker. And either way, if you're, if you're faced with the choice of, shall I write all of this code or just a little bit of code, then you're going to take a little bit of code for lots of reasons. Not only does it keep you going for that day, like your momentum continues, you don't have to stop and learn about permissions and figure out all the different code that you need to write and where the code needs to go and how to make it sure that it's organized. But in the future, when you're maintaining your software, when you're making sure that there aren't any bugs and you're updating things, that that's 60 more lines of code you have to you have to think about every time you look at your code in the future. So if there is something simpler, like libcapng, that can make it easier for people to to maintain code that is, you know, that does its due diligence uh, for security purposes, then I think, I think that's great. So libcapng is probably the way I would go were I faced with this kind of quandary. Next up is libcddb. That's an online CD database library. I feel like we've talked about cddb before. It's a really useful big project out there in the world um, that simply acts as a catalog of all the different albums uh, in the world. So um, freedb.org is no longer um, a project, but if you go to um, if you go to gnudb.org, gnudb.org, uh, that's the new home for freedb.org database, and that's what you should use in all of your um, all of your applications that that need to query an online database. Uh, as I understand it, and I haven't looked at it in, into it lately, but it 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 does things like it figures out that um, 
this this set of songs at these lengths seems like it must be this album because you figure well there's got to be a billion songs that are three minutes and or you know two minutes and 44 seconds I, I don't know how long pop songs actually are but let's say they're two minutes and 44 seconds a bunch of them but how many two minute 44 second songs are preceded by a three minute and one second song and followed by a two minute and 58 second song probably not that many in that exact order and of course it gets bigger the more songs you have on an album so that comparison of what's the exact order of these time the time stamps for each song for each track what can we what can we guess that album might be now if there's metadata that's available then you can you know use that um i i think some services also use audio um audio wave comparisons but i could be wrong about that and that might that might not be in the database that might be something separate uh, i haven't looked at the database itself recently but certainly if you're using like easy tag or uh kid3 those kinds of meta tagging applications a lot of them have options for a, a cddb destination and gnudb.org is the, the one that you would use and the reason that they can make those quick queries out to cddb is because of libcddb next up is libcdio and that is a gnu cd access library so it contains a library for cd-rom and cd image access in, uh, applications wishing to be uh, oblivious to the os and device dependent properties of a cd-rom or the specific details of various cd image formats can just use this library it's a library for working with iso 9660 file systems uh, lib iso 9660 is also included in libcdio that's libcdio if you want to read from a cd this is the library you're going to be using you're going to open that device using a function of libcdio ISO 9660 is the is a specification for optical media and the it, it was you know as long as you have this library you can read and write well you can read at least uh and I think write uh to ISO 9660 really easily it, it because the library again that's got it all figured out for you so all you need to do is use a function from that library and now you're reading information from ISO 9660 um that has I, I think that kind of thing, the, this universal, uh, well, I'm going to say universal disk format, but that is actually something separate. That's UDF, um, and I've talked about that before. UDF is used typically in DVDs as the universal disk format so that any device can read from that. ISO 9660 is... is a precursor to UDF and and I think I mean I think I think we sometimes undervalue and take for granted the the fact that for instance a CD ISO 9660 I mean everyone could use that like you put it into any kind of computer with any operating system and and they just understood how to read those and can you imagine if we had some kind of universal disk format like UDF uh, to to bridge all of the platforms I mean I just think that would be brilliant I, I loved UDF uh, for such a long time I, I, I use I used to use it all the time because I needed cr uh, compatibility just you know super easy compatibility between different operating systems at, at that particular job that I was at so I used UDF all the time it was a great disk format the the problem was that the platforms I was using UDF on like to, to go to from from Linux to those systems it, it, they they dropped UDF support <laughs> because you know optical media just became 
not as fashionable. And so they just literally, they just were like, eh, no one will ever need UDF on this platform again. And so it, it got dropped. So even the, the thing that was universal, they, they managed to make non-universal. Um, shocker, the company that I'm talking about was Apple. Uh, CDIO, that's that one. LibCDIO-Paranoia is the CD Paranoia library uh, from LibCDIO. This is a CDDA reader um, distribution, reading audio from the CD-ROM directly as data with no analog step between. So in other words, if you've got, for instance, audio on a, a disc, which people do sometimes, then the fear is that sometimes the audio could become corrupt during the translation uh, from the disk to your to, to to a destination, whereas this library allows you to read that data just as raw bits. And when you're when you're reading raw bits, of course, the computer can verify: Did I get that bit or not? If I didn't get the bit, hold on, let me go back and try to read it. And that's what paranoia will do. It goes back and it'll try to read that bit and read that bit until it gets a success. So libcdio-paranoia in theory, can rescue um, discs that aren't playing in a CD player. Like maybe they scratch, they're, they're scratched, and so the, the, the data the data comes through distorted, or, or, you know, it skips over that data or something. Whereas, supposedly with Lib Paranoia, Lib CDIO Paranoia, and, and CD Paranoia, those libraries, that'll rescue a thing. I have had horrible luck with that. I, I believe I've never rescued anything with Paranoia. I'm not saying it's no good. I'm just saying, I guess, when I've resorted to it, whatever I was attempting to solve must have been too far gone because it is, yeah, it has basically never worked for me. So I don't, I, I, I can't, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think about lib uh, cdio paranoia or cd paranoia much at all because it's just never worked for me um happy to have it work for me at some point in the future but so far nothing uh and although i guess you know if if you argue that if i gave it enough time maybe it would eventually work because there are some there's a disc i think i probably still have it that's pretty badly scratched and i'd love to extract the data from it and i've let it run for like days and it just hasn't it hasn't worked so i don't know maybe maybe i need to let it run for several years um i'm not gonna do that though okay next up is libclc and this is an uh, opencl library opencl is the open computer language or open computing language it is the it's a, a processing a parallel processing language to help you get to, to for you to to be able to use CPU and GPU processing together. It is um, developed by the Kronos Group, which is the sort of OpenGL uh, Vulkan uh, group that, that does a bunch of, you know, most of the open source graphic work these days. Um, they're huge. They do a lot of, uh, you know, really important, like amazingly important work. Uh, and it's it's open standards. It's royalty-free open standards for 3D graphics, virtual and augmented reality, parallel computing, machine learning, and vision prop, uh, processing. Huge, huge, huge deal. And if you look through the specifications for OpenCL, which they have on Kronos.org, you can get there to the, the white paper, or, or whatever it's called. I call it a white paper. Um, maybe it's a, I don't know, well, it's a specification is what it is, but it's paper, and it's white. If you print it out on white paper, um, you, you get, I mean, there's, there's companies here, you know, people from companies listed in the acknowledgements that are big deals. AMD, 
uh, Apple, Arm, Broadcom, Blizzard, Codeplay, Electronics, uh, Electronic Arts, Ericsson, Freescale, Graphic Remedy, IBM, Intel, Imagination Technologies, Sony, um, Los Alamos National Laboratory, that's interesting, Kronos, Kestrel Institute, NVIDIA, forgot them, uh, ST Microelectronics, don't even know what that is, Symbian, Texas Instruments, really, like, just companies that, you know, are, are a big deal, which, going back to that discussion of, like, where's open source today, the fact that there's a Kronos group that acknowledges two pages of people from companies that have millions of dollars supporting their efforts, I mean, in some cases, billions of dollars supporting effort, and it's, it's going towards a, a universally recognized, cross-compatible language to enable 3D graphics, I mean, that's a big, big deal. It's, 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 it's weird. It's 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 a big deal, but it's also a scary thing, you know, because as an open source enthusiast, you might say, well, I don't want to be that dependent on the companies I've just listed. Like, those are companies that I don't, I, I you know, you, we probably don't necessarily like everything that they do. Did I say two pages? It's actually three pages of names, single column. Um, it's, you know, so you, you might not think, well, I don't, I don't want to have to rely on all these companies to get graphics on my computer. And I think that's fair enough. But temper that with the reality that those companies exist. And they could be all doing their own thing. They could all be working in a silo. And we could have a case where every single different kind of computer or different operating system has a different way of, of rendering graphics. I mean, this kind of thing has, has existed before. It's not a good place to be. So the fact that, that some force is, is inspiring them to work together to provide something that everyone can use, that really is a big deal. It's, it's an important thing. And once again, I, I don't think that that is a foregone conclusion. I don't think that has to happen. It could, it could happen differently. It could be that they don't do that. But for whatever reason, and it's the influence of open source, they've decided to actually work together. And we're all benefiting from it, depending on what you're doing with your computer. Maybe you're not benefiting from it. Maybe you don't even run a graphics server. Maybe you just type text. That's fine. Um, but for the people who are like running Steam and, and playing, you know, the latest game, Cyberpunk 2077 or Starfield or whatever the latest game is when you hear this, then that's... This is a big deal. Okay, so it says, this is just reading from the specification document, because it is actually pretty interesting. I'm not going to read all 385 pages of the document, but a little bit of an introduction might be nice. Modern processor architectures have embraced parallelism as an important pathway to increased performance. Facing technical challenges with higher clock speeds in a fixed power envelope, central processing units, that's CPUs, now improve performance by adding multiple cores. Graphics processing units, GPUs, have also evolved from fixed function rendering devices into programmable parallel processors. As today's computer systems often include highly parallel CPUs, GPUs, and other types of processors, it is important to enable software developers to take full advantage of these heterogeneous processing platforms. So that's that's the 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 statement, the the mission statement of OpenCL, basically. We have all of these pro these different kinds of processors that are capable of really, really maximizing, like, the, 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 the data flow 
but a, a programmer needs to be able to access that power. And so OpenCL is one way to do that. The uh, a gateway, and there are others, OpenCL is not the only one, but I've only ever seen OpenCL. Uh, everyone seems to be using it. I mean, you might notice that Microsoft isn't on this list. This is an old specification paper. It could be that Microsoft has come to the table. I don't know. Uh, I haven't, haven't checked. But um, certainly at the jobs in film that I've worked on, uh, worked in, and there have been a few, uh, OpenCL or, or, you know, other, other similar technology has been the go-to solution. So I don't know what else other people, what, what other people are using, but OpenCL, um, is, is quite, quite the popular solution. Okay. And quite, quite powerful. So that's libclc is, is the, is the, um, is the library that you're looking at there. And that's BSD, MIT, dual license, implementation of the library requirements of the OpenCLC programming language as specified by OpenCL specification. I think it's time for a coffee break. That's what I think. Come back and we'll pick up a couple more. You know, you win some and you lose some, and this week I feel like I kind of lost it because I I went to the store uh, this past week and got some coffee, and the place that I go, again, you bring your own container, you fill it up with stuff out of a bin. The, the coffee bins are three. There are three coffee bins, and they never have enough coffee in any of the bins to fill the container that I want to take with me. It's about a kilogram of, of coffee that I try to get for, for however long that'll last me, and and they never have enough. So I just, I it's the same price, they don't care, so I'll, I just combine all the everything that they have into one bin and that's my custom blend well this time around um i i I had to do all three bins sometimes you only have to do two you know but this time it was three so i have coffee in from three different bins in this one container that i have and this time around I, i i'm hoping that it's just because i'm sort of on the top layer and I hope that once I get further down, I'll, I'll get to the other bins, you know? Because, I mean, I don't think... I didn't shake up the, the container, so it's like the coffee beans are just, just laying as I place them. So I, I feel like there are probably three separate stratas of, of coffee bins in this container. Maybe I should shake it up. I don't know. Um, but this... The, the coffee that I'm on right now... The, is it's the leftmost container. Note to self, don't do that again. Uh, the leftmost container, not good. It really, it's just not good. It's not flavorful. It's not strong. It, it is, it, it's not, I'm not saying it's, yeah, it's not strong. It's like not, it doesn't have flavor. It's not very good. I've tried percolating it. I've tried, um, plunger. I've tried, have I tried? I don't think I've tried the espresso, the stuff, the stovetop espresso. Maybe I'll try that next. So I don't know what I've, you know, what, what's up with that, that bin of coffee. Not my favorite. So I'm, I'm, I'm still working on getting a, a truly satisfying cup of coffee out of this thing, and it's taking me a while. So, yeah, it's just a hazard of, of the process, really. This is, um, 
you go to a container, bring your own container store, and, and you just, you take what you can get, uh, and sometimes what you can get is not the, maybe your first choice. Okay, so we're back into libraries here, but before we start up again, let's talk a little bit, I think it might be worth talking about the difference between scripting and programming. A lot of us, I think, have kind of a instinctual knowledge of what the difference is between a scripting language and a programming language, but maybe we don't really think about why there's a difference, and some of you probably don't really know the difference. It, it all looks like programming to you, which would be fair, because I think broadly it is. I think programming is generally defined as, as creating algorithms for a computer to repeat, and, and that qualifies programming in a, you know, a programming language that needs to be compiled, and programming in a scripted language, both of those things are, are programming. So it's completely fair to just broadly say, yes, I am programming right now. That's not, I don't think that's misrepresenting anything at all. And I think it's important to maintain the knowledge that those two are essentially the same processes, because it's silly, I think, you know, for people to, to maybe view one kind of programming as maybe more uh, important than the other. Um, you know, like, I, I feel like sometimes people might start to think, well, if you're not programming in C or C++ or, or those two, um, then you're not really programming, are you? You're, you're just, you know, you're doing, you're doing the easy stuff. Well, it's not easy. It's, it's just as hard, or it's not just as hard. Well, it is just as hard to program in Python or Java or Bash. But the, the difference is that that the difference is where you're spending your is in part where you're spending your effort. A lot of the like the C stuff. I mean, the C demo applications I've done through this library uh, section. You you see kind of how many lines of code sometimes it takes just to get some some you know just to get down like a, a, a one little thing one process that maybe in a different language you'd be able to just invoke exactly one module and and suddenly you get the same result. So you're not spending the same time on the same processes. Now, and, and you may be, well, you, you probably are writing more code, you know, the lower down you get. So I guess, you, is that harder? I don't know if it's harder. Does it take more time? Yes, it does. Possibly. Depends on where you are, too. I mean, if you've been writing C for 20 years, you're probably pretty fast at it, and there's probably a lot you can do in relatively little amount of time, even though you are writing more code. You're just doing it faster because you don't have to think about certain things, whereas someone who's just started writing Python yesterday, it's going to take them a long time to even get just a just a, a window to appear at all. I mean, it'll probably take months. To, well, maybe not. It depends on what they're using. Anyway, point is, programming is programming. Both are, you know, any any way you do it, I think, is a valuable way. I think it's, it's a legitimate way if you're, if you're coming up with a way to automate something for yourself or to do something different than what your computer can already do, I think that's great. But what's the difference? What what's what's a scripting what is a scripting language versus a programming language? What when are you when are you scripting versus programming? And there is a difference. And many of us may think, well, the difference is that scripting is a you're you're writing in an interpreted language, doesn't need to get compiled versus programming that that needs to be compiled in order to to run even though sometimes that compiled process uh you know happens very quickly or or as part of a, a different process that you don't even see for yourself you don't really do the compiling yourself because some other application is doing it for you whatever whatever the case may be there's like this knowledge that well programming is done with a it is it, the the 
the end of a the end step of a program of programming programming is compiling whereas the end step of a scripting language is that you just run the thing and literally that takes the the form of gcc example dot c dash o my sample return so you're you're invoking a compiler that's programming whereas with something else python you just type in python and now you're in python and you can do things like print parentheses quote hello close quote close parentheses and it prints hello and then you can try to struggle to get out of it oh exit parentheses parentheses that's how you get out of it so there's a difference there um but here's the thing um with with compiled when you're programming and and this is important for the section that we're in right now with the libraries you're including libraries you're you're including functions of libraries within your code whereas in a scripting language you are more often than not and there are some ex exceptions just to muddy the waters but more often than not broadly speaking you are not you're not doing that you're not embedding code into your code you are stringing code together so for instance if if you just do a find uh, in your home directory dash type f dash i name quote asterisk txt so that's going to find all the txt files in your home directory wow i have a lot more than i realized uh maybe i'll do license all capital dot txt and make that a name there well there's a lot there too wow there are a lot of um there are a lot of txt files in my home directory who knew all right how about if i just make it literally license dot txt there's still a lot Okay, whatever. Doesn't matter. So there's a lot. So if I pipe that to grep um, for anything that also contains n n the word super tux, super tux, then I only find one, two, three, four results. So I've just scripted something essentially. I mean, I'm doing it interactive, fairly interactively. So I don't know if that's exactly the same thing, but I've just kind of scripted this this process where my computer will find all the license.txt files on my in my home directory, and it'll filter out for me because I've piped the output of find into the input of grep. It'll find anything that that in that long long path name includes the word super tux and that's significant because that has find and grep are 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 applications that exist and i'm not i'm not embedding them into something else i am i am just stringing them together now i can i could i could make this into a shell script emacs my script dot sh i could type the same exact thing or because i'm lazy copy and paste the exact same thing and i'll put a little shebang shebang bin wait is it user yeah probably user bin env space bash then i type the same thing and now i if i do bash dot dot slash my script dot sh i get the same kind of output but i still haven't embedded code into that script uh, i've simply invoked applications and they're running as intended but through through some linux posix um trickery i've i've strung them together i've i've rewired how sort of one outputs its information and how the other one in uh, receives information i've redirected output to input and and now they're together. Whereas in an application, as we've seen in the demo uh, applications with programming, if we do my program 
.sh, and then we do a hash include angle bracket standard io.h close bracket. Now I've included something. I've I've embedded the code from standard IO into this application. I didn't have to type it all out myself. I don't have to go copy and paste the code, but that's what the include statement functionally does. And so now that code is part of my program. And in fact, that that iteration of that code is part of my program. Because if I compile that right now, then then that becomes that application. All those all that those lines of code are now in my application. I think there's a significance a significant difference to those two processes, um, and I think they're both very, very powerful. Uh, one, the the stringing things together in a scripting language, that's really powerful because it's it's pretty darned um, intuitive if if you know the the things that you're stringing together. Like you very much, you're you're building a new application by by combining other applications, but the, the way that you know to combine those two other applications is because you've used them in other contexts. And I think that's I think that's probably why, in in a way, grep is such a powerful little tool because so many people, Linux users, when they're they're learning terminal, they learn grep pretty early on because it's something that you can pipe into, and then you you develop more understanding of what grep can do. Like, oh, I could do. I could do a grep, but I could exclude the results instead of include them, or I could, I can do a case insensitive search instead of a sensitive search, and all these other, these, these little tools that it provides you, and it becomes a component, a building block for more complex actions that you might want to do in your shell. And it's not just grep, obviously. I mean, there there are lots of things that I think a, a, a Linux user uses here and there, maybe maybe as an introduction to the terminal, or maybe just because you, you discover it and you start using it because it's useful to you. Uh, Rev being a, something that sort of leaps to mind, or even TR, just where it's like, oh, I, I see the utility for that all of a sudden. Now, now that I I, I I know how I I, I know I want to get to a certain place. It's just what's the easiest way for me to get there? Oh, what if I reverse the string and parse parse whatever's at the beginning rather than trying to find the end? Yeah, that's a lot easier. I'll do that, and then I'll pipe it back to Rev to get it back. You know, and and you can kind of develop all these little tricks yourself by using them, and that that's harder to do with a library. Like you can you can do it with a library if if you if you practice. But how how many people sit around practicing trivial seeming programming tasks people do it but not not all of us do it all the time and, and that's what it would take you'd have to just sit there at your text editor your IDE and include a library and just see what you can do with it which I mean that's a valid way to learn a, a library believe me it is just it's it's not quite as natural as learning the commands that that are functional on an everyday basis, and and that, that very frequently the default of those those applications does something useful. Whereas with a library, because they very frequently do so many minute little specific things, even if you are just doing a little test run in a programming language, you you do one or two things in a library, and and as far as you know, you haven't done anything. All you've done is I don't know 
queried the size of a window, you know, like, well, great, now what? What do I do with that? How do I even get that output? Like, the program didn't fail to compile, so I guess it must have worked, but I don't, I don't, you don't see the difference. It doesn't do anything for you. And I think that's why Bash is such a, such a very, very useful introduction into the concept of programming, because there's so much you can do that is immediately useful, whereas even something like Python, which, I mean, you know, people kind of, kind of debate whether that's a scripting language or a programming language, but even, even Python, like, there's, there's a, there's like this big chasm between just the normal user who says, oh yeah, I should learn how to program, and then a point in Python where they're actually doing something that's useful, which in a way is kind of why I like why I've enjoyed introducing people to Ansible. In Ansible, I kind of think almost as a module of Python. I'm sure Ansible wouldn't be happy to hear me say that. I don't know how they feel about that. But, I mean, in a way it is. It's it's such a Python sort of adjacent process where where you, you're instead of writing Python, you're you're writing YAML, really. And then you, you run it in Ansible and it does a bunch of things for you. It makes sure that your end state is exactly what you've described. And that's a very user-centric kind of thing. It's, it's purpose-built to be used, whereas Python is it's just the tools. It's just hammers and nails, screws and screwdrivers and drills, and you don't know what to do with it. You don't, you don't know what it can do for you yet because you don't even know how to use them. So maybe you can do some cool tricks like, oh, look, there's the time. I just got it from Python. Uh, there's a listing of my directory. That was an advanced task in Python. I had to include this special module, and then I had to, or do they, they don't call it include, right? They call it import. I had to import a module, which essentially is like the pipe action in a, in a weird way. So you're including the module, you're importing the module, and then you, you do the, the os.dir or the os.list, whatever it is, I think it's os.dir, uh, command, and and you get the output. And and that seems cool and, and useful, but redundant. I mean, you certainly already have ls, and it gives you much more useful uh, out, uh, a format of output that's more useful. And it, it just takes a long time to get from, yes, I am typing things and making things happen in this, this language, and, and, oh, I can actually, this is actually helping me get things done today. Now, with programming, I think, I think that chasm is even, even wider than something like Python, which, again, I, I think there's an argument that it's a little bit of a script, a little bit of a programming language. With with a programming language, where you're including libraries and having to learn about functions and methods and classes and things like that, I think it takes a lot, a lot longer to sort of get the feel for why that works and how that works and what's even possible as opposed to a scripting language where you see all the pieces in front of you and each piece has a, a, a very complete description of what it can and importantly what it cannot do and, and that is important because I mean that's kind of one of the drawbacks of, of a scripting language you, you you want to do something but the the tool set that you have available to you just doesn't have the specificity that you need for that thing. I've run into that myself. I can't think of a, a good example. I've I've tried to think of one, but sometimes you're you're you know you you'll you'll know exactly what you want to do, and you'll just realize there's just no way for me to to do all of this as a one line command, or or it's no way no way for me to do all of that without going out to some temporary file first and then processing the temporary file, that kind of thing. So scripting scripting is you've got lots of little box cars. And you're you're tethering them together into a train. Programming, you're opening up all the boxcars, taking the contents out, and putting them into one single boxcar. That's my analogy. All right, next up for the libraries is libq cue. Um, 
So a Q-sheet, C-U-E, Q-sheet is a metadata file describing the layout of a CD or a DVD, and libq parses a Q-sheet, and it provides an API for you to be able to then access that, that, um, that Q-sheet, the, the parsed data, which obviously is important. Um, I've never seen a Q-sheet. I don't know what these actually are. I mean, other than that it's just been described. Uh, and the, the GitHub uh, page that describes the library libq does reference a Wikipedia sheet about Q-sheets, but I, I don't know what a, a Q-sheet is exactly. Although, you, some of the, some of the, um, the, like the metadata might seem familiar. Like you may have seen things like CD text file, flags, catalog, title, performer, songwriter. Um, and for a while there was a, a thing where uh, some CD players were trying to uh, make it a thing that CD text, like CDs would, would, would contain more more data about what was on it for for cd players to display them and i think i imagine it was probably probably starting to ramp up and then probably cds fell out of fashion that's kind of my because i feel like i heard about cd text for instance and then kind of eventually and then shortly thereafter people had moved on from cds so i don't know if it was just a, a matter of timing or just not enough adoption or what but anyway that's cd text this this isn't necessarily cd text a cue sheet itself simply has more information about the contents of the cd which may or may not be expressed as cd text it could just be you know metadata um what that's meant to provide i guess depends on on the cue sheet uh it it is typically things like yeah like you know artist name performer track name things like that um but i've, I've never i've never dealt with that but that's libq anyway that's what that does okay next up is libdbus menu this is a GTK Dbus menu protocol, a small library that was created by pulling out some common code uh, from Indicator Applet, and it passes a menu structure across Dbus so that a program can create a menu without really having to think about how it's going to display, how it's going to be displayed on whatever other end. I think this is a great example of a library, of what a library does. This is the kind of thing, it's, it's like, well, we're gonna, we're gonna look at what, what information goes into making a library, and we'll define that information. And how you decode that on your side is up to you. It's, it's up to your your desktop environment, but the just the raw data, we can we can build that for whatever reason from whatever sources. We can build that and then pass that over to you. And I I mean really that's kind of that's what interprocess communication uh and, and arguably even some network communication ought to be, really. Just just send the data and the the structure or like describe the structure and then let the other side assemble all of those things in a way that that, that that the other side needs to assemble it, whatever that might be. It might be a different widget set than what you expect. It might be a, might not be a graphical thing at all. It might be just turned into plain text uh, on some kind of terminal display or, or whatever. I think that's really, really, really vital, like that kind of separation of, of, of content and structure from... I guess implementation, uh, or I guess I guess content from style, broadly speaking. There's um, an accompanying lib dbus menu for Qt as well. That's lib dbus dbus menu dash Qt, and it's it's exactly the same 
same thing. Then there's lib disk ID. This is the Music Brains disk ID library, uh, which attempts to create a um, an ID for a disk by by reading the table of contents of a CD and and generating a unique identifier. Uh, and this this is how Music Brains the the Music Brains database organizes its catalog. This is the library for determining what a CD contains based on. MusicBrains.org is a little bit like GNUDB, I guess, or FreeDB. It's a place that catalogs all the albums available on CD. They do that by assigning unique IDs to known albums, which you can then ideally access through LibDiskID. Okay, probably the last one. LibDMX. I mean, we've gotten through the Cs, at least. That's a good thing. Uh, LibDMTX is a package that um, enables programs to read and write data matrix barcodes of the modern ECC200 variety. So this is, I mean, it's barcodes. This is this is important for, I think, I think especially for like small businesses because a lot of times they struggle with, well, how how do we process items in our in stock quickly because it's got this barcode on it and we don't, you know, like what do you do with that barcode? Well, I don't know if this library is really going to change anyone's life directly because the chances are if you're if you're just working you're a small bookseller, you know, <laughs> you're just trying to process books, you're probably not going to go and grab this library and program a solution for yourself. But the, that this library exists obviously helps uh, programmers create applications like little uh, payment or, or the POS point of sale applications to help to help people process um, to process barcodes. I think the the other problem with barcodes, of course, is that they do require some kind of reader, which uh, historically has been, you know, it's been a special device that aren't, it's not really sold usually, just kind of like off the shelf. You don't just go to a store and get a barcode reader. You have to like find a barcode reader. Luckily, in my limited experience with this, they've been pretty generic. Like once you find a barcode reader, you just plug it in and it just reads in stuff as a serial, you know, just raw data, just a string of numbers, really. It's really basic. Uh, again, basic to you and me, not basic to someone who just wants to make their computer look and see what book they're holding up to it or, or you know, whatever item it is, um, as independent album or, you know, like whatever you're selling at your little store. So I don't know. I, I, I dislike it. I don't like it. I think QR codes in a way has been revolutionary combined at least with like the prevalence of like digital imaging like with, you know your phone in your pocket so i mean that's been huge and i think on a pra on a pragmatic level that's where really i think all of that should go i think we should stop with the barcodes and just use qr codes uh, i think that would be much much easier for everyone because i mean even with open source libraries to look through look at the the barcode it's again what are you going to do with it? Actually, you know what? I think we could get through the D section as well. We've only got like two D section or two libraries left in D, and then we would be in E. So let's let's do those two, and then we'll stop this episode. So libdvd nav and libdvd read. These are libraries you use every day if you play DVDs on your computer. Uh, I still do that. I I play DVDs. I have a little. Uh, outboard. Well, on my tower, I have a built-in optical media drive now. But uh, for my laptop, I have a little outboard DVD player. It was like 20 bucks back in the States, and I've been using it for the past decade. Um, and and LibDVD Read can read the video disc, and then LibDVD Nav helps the application uh, reading the thing 
actually be able to navigate through the the menus and uh, multi-angle playback if if your DVD has that uh, and interactive little DVD games things like that so all of that stuff that's provided by or, or the the reading is provided by lib DVD read nav by nav uh, and really both of those are provided by video land so if you're using VLC then th that's where all of this stuff comes from if you're using VLC as a flat pack of course then you um, you are using you are using these libraries again They're, they've been downloaded again for you you're not even using the ones that have been installed on Slackware but you know what you didn't have to really think about it it just happened magically and that is the magic of flat pack so there you go that's all the C's and the D's in the library uh, section which is great because now we're in the E's and there's only two of those so I mean, really, I'm almost tempted to do those now, but I'm not going to. We're going to stop the episode here. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open